This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case book Computer Aided Exercises in Civil Procedure by Roger C. Park and Douglas D. McFarland. The case book is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute the contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit, and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Civil Procedure Lectures. This is lecture number one, and in this lecture we'll be talking about jurisdiction. So moving to types of jurisdiction. Before a suit can be brought in a given forum, the court must have jurisdiction. That is the power to speak, diction, the law, juris. Jurisdiction is divided into three components. One, subject matter jurisdiction. Two, personal jurisdiction and three, notice and opportunity to be heard. The court needs all three types of jurisdiction to proceed to adjudicate the lawsuit. In addition, venue must be properly laid. That is, plaintiff must bring the suit in a proper district. Subject matter jurisdiction is a question of authority of the court over the nature of of the litigation, that is, the subject matter presented. The rules of subject matter jurisdiction ask whether the court has been given the power to decide a certain type of legal controversy. In order to determine whether a federal court possesses subject matter jurisdiction, a lawyer will look to the Constitution of the United States and federal statutes. For a state court, the lawyer will look to the state constitution and state statutes. Many state courts are given broad power to hear all types of cases. They are courts of general subject matter jurisdiction. Other courts are limited in the types of cases they may hear and are courts of limited subject matter jurisdiction. The common limits are the type of claim or the amount claimed. For example, a state might have a court of general jurisdiction plus a specific court to deal with probate law, another to deal with tax cases, and a third to deal with workers' compensation cases. In such a system, a suit on a contract brought in probate court, 
would be dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Another state might establish a small claims court to hear cases not exceeding an amount in controversy of $5,000. A case seeking in excess of $5,000 brought in that court would be dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. All federal courts, district courts, courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court of the United States are courts of limited subject matter jurisdiction. Because federal courts have limited subject matter jurisdiction, a party seeking to enter federal court must specifically plead that jurisdiction. Because subject matter jurisdiction is conferred by the Constitution and statute, it cannot be conferred on a court by the parties. The parties can neither consent to nor waive subject matter jurisdiction. The federal court rule that subject matter jurisdiction may be challenged at any stage of the litigation necessarily follows from this principle. Personal jurisdiction refers to the court's power over the parties or over the party's property. Some writers prefer to call this type of jurisdiction basis jurisdiction, but the more common usage is personal jurisdiction, which, as we use the term, includes power over both persons and things. Since a plaintiff who commences an action consents to the personal jurisdiction of the court, the question is power over defendants. When the court possesses power over the person of the defendant, the court has in personam jurisdiction. The traditional method for a court to obtain power over the person of a defendant has always been service on that person within the boundaries of the state. The human or corporate defendant had to be present within the state for the court to be able to exercise power. As 20th century advances in transportation and commerce made commercial activity far from home common, courts began to shift emphasis away from physical presence in the state to a consideration of whether the state was a convenient geographic location for the lawsuit. States enacted long-arm statutes to reach out beyond state boundaries to bring defendants into the state from afar. Even today, however, convenience has not become the sole consideration for jurisdiction. A state is required to refrain from exercising jurisdiction over a defendant who has insufficient minimum contacts with the forum state even though the forum would be a convenient location for the lawsuit. Personal jurisdiction is broader than in personam jurisdiction, since the court's power may be based not directly on the person of the defendant, but on the defendant through property owned. When the purpose of the litigation is to determine rights in a piece of property, the res located in the state. The action is an in-rem proceeding. 
when the claim in the litigation is unrelated to the property and the plaintiff seizes the res for the sole purpose of obtaining jurisdiction over the defendant within the state, the jurisdiction is quasi in rem. The court's power over the person of the defendant will extend only to the limits of the value of the defendant's interest in the seized property. Since personal jurisdiction means power over the person or the property of the defendant, the defendant can confer it on the court by consent or waiver. A personal jurisdiction defense not raised by the defendant at the first opportunity is waived. And notice an opportunity to be heard form the third part of the jurisdictional triangle. The defendant must receive notice of the pending action and a meaningful opportunity to be heard in defense before defendant's property is taken. Due process requires no less. Notice is accomplished by service of a summons on the defendant, whether by personal service in hand, substituted service on another for the defendant, or constructive service of publication of the summons in a newspaper. Of these methods, the problematical one is service by publication, since that method may not be reasonably calculated to achieve actual notice to defendant. Note that personal service on a defendant out of state cannot raise an objection to notice. Defendant certainly has received proper notice, even though the defendant might have a valid objection to personal jurisdiction. Finally, since notice may be received even through improper procedures, the defendant may consent to notice. Opportunity to be heard problems arise in two situations. First, and rarely, defendant is given an inadequate time to respond to the complaint. Second, and more commonly, property of the defendant is seized prior to judgment. Defendant must receive a meaningful chance to defend the case before, or at least shortly after, the property is taken. And venue. Venue is not a jurisdictional requirement, yet it is closely associated with jurisdiction, and the two are sometimes confused. The difference is that jurisdiction deals with the power of the court, while venue allocates judicial business among various courts that have jurisdictional power. Should one federal district court have subject matter jurisdiction over a case, all federal district courts will have subject matter jurisdiction. Every one of them will be able to give proper notice. Perhaps even all of them will have personal jurisdiction over the defendant. Yet the federal venue statutes will require that the case be brought only in a small number or even only one of those districts. The rules of venue are designed to ensure that trials are conducted in a convenient place. A case laying venue 
in the wrong federal district may be dismissed or may be transferred to a district in which it could have been brought. A defendant may also consent or waive objection to venue. Now moving to subject matter jurisdiction and state courts. Even though state court systems do have courts of limited subject matter jurisdiction, every state has a state court of general subject matter jurisdiction that is able to hear all types of cases. That court may be called the Superior Court, the District Court, the Supreme Court, the Circuit Court, or some other name. And Federal Courts. Since subject matter jurisdiction is dependent on the Constitution and statutes that empower the court, we looked first to the Judicial Article of the United States Constitution to determine what types of cases it permits federal courts to hear. Quote, The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens, or subjects. End quote. This is Article 3, Section 2 of the United States Constitution. The two most commonly used types of federal court subject matter jurisdiction are federal question that is, all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, and diversity of citizenship, that is, between citizens of different states. Even though the Constitution provides that the federal judicial power shall extend over these two areas, Congress must pass legislation to vest such authority in the federal courts. While the matter is not free from doubt, the Supreme Court has often said that the judicial power of the United States within the outer limits of the Constitution is dependent on Congress, which may invest the inferior federal courts with jurisdiction either limited, concurrent, or exclusive and withhold jurisdiction from them in the exact degrees and character which to Congress may seem proper for the public good. Indeed, Congress did not grant the federal courts authority to hear federal question cases until 1875, and proposals to eliminate diversity jurisdiction are even today introduced. 
And moving to federal question jurisdiction. The statute implementing the constitutional grant of power over federal questions reads as follows. The district courts shall have original jurisdiction of all civil actions arising under the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States. This is 28 U.S.C. Section 1331. A case arising under the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States presents a federal question, even though the key words of the statute arising under are identical to the Constitution. The courts interpret the statute more narrowly than the Constitution. When a federal statute creates the claim, courts have little difficulty recognizing a federal question. Even here, however, what appears at first glance to be a claim founded on federal law may not be. Suppose, for example, that an author assigns a copyright issued under federal copyright law to an entrepreneur in exchange for an agreement to share royalties on marketing of the composition. Later, the author sues for failure to pay royalties and seeks an accounting. Is this a federal question? No, because here the complaint presents a state law claim of breach of contract. The most difficult cases have been those in which a federal law issue arises in a claim created by state law. Despite the best efforts of some of the best judges of our national history, the phrase arising under has remained elusive in these cases. At the ends of the continuum, cases can easily be classified as arising under federal law or arising under state law. Near the middle, the question of whether a case presents a federal question can be exceedingly difficult. Further discussion of federal questions is beyond the scope of this lecture. The topic is explored in depth in a course on federal jurisdiction. Now moving to diversity jurisdiction. Diversity cases involve citizens of different states. The statute implementing the constitutional grant of power over diversity of citizenship cases reads as follows. Quote, the district courts shall have original jurisdiction of all civil actions where the matter in controversy exceeds the sum or value of $75,000, exclusive of interest and costs, and is between, one, citizens of different states, two, citizens of a state and citizens or subjects of a foreign state, three, citizens of different states and in which citizens or subjects of a foreign state are additional parties. And four, a foreign state defined in section 1603A of this title as plaintiff and citizens of a state or of different states. That is 28 U.S.C. section 
three, two. This statute clearly requires that for a federal court to have diversity jurisdiction, the case must satisfy two requirements. One, diversity of citizenship of the parties. And two, an adequate jurisdictional amount. Now, determining the amount in controversy, the diversity jurisdictional statute, that is 28 U.S.C., Section 1332 requires that the matter in controversy exceeds the sum or value of $75,000 exclusive of interest and costs. This means diversity of citizenship alone is not enough. The plaintiff must also be seeking to recover in excess of $75,000. Since the first Congress, the diversity statute has required a minimum amount in controversy. The Judiciary Act of 1789 set that amount at $500. Congress raised the amount in 1887 to $2,000, in 1911 to $3,000, in 1958 to $10,000, in 1988 to $50,000, and again in 1996 to $75,000. In part, this jurisdictional amount has been raised in response to broader attempts to abolish diversity jurisdiction. As might be expected, the courts have developed many rules for determining the amount in controversy. Probably the basic rule is that the good faith face of the complaint controls And removal jurisdiction. Removal jurisdiction is a question of federal subject matter jurisdiction. A defendant in an action filed by a plaintiff in a state court may remove the case to federal court if the federal court would have had original jurisdiction over it. Removal jurisdiction is a one-way street, state courts to federal courts. Removal from federal court to state court does not exist. Also, the federal removal statute, that is 28 U.S.C. section 1441, allows removal by the defendant or the defendants. This means a plaintiff cannot remove a case from state court to federal court, even when the defendant has asserted a counterclaim. The basic removal provision is Section 1441A. Removal is limited in diversity cases by Section 1441B. In addition to these primary provisions, Section 1441C allows removal when the case includes a separate and independent claim based on federal question jurisdiction. Most state procedures require some connection such as being part of the same transaction or occurrence, between claims for them to be joined together in a complaint. The connection required to get the defendants together in state court is usually strong enough to prevent the claims from being separate enough for removal to federal court. Now moving to personal jurisdiction. 
and rules of in personam jurisdiction. The following describes four traditional grounds for jurisdiction over the person of the defendant in personam jurisdiction that have achieved general acceptance in American courts. One, consent. The court has personal jurisdiction over a party who consents to the jurisdiction of the court. This consent may be expressed as by an admission in open court, implied as by driving on the roads of a state that has a statute deeming use of the state's roads to be a submission to jurisdiction, or even inadvertent as by waiver of the defense for failure to raise it in the first response to the complaint. And two, domicile. Courts can exercise personal jurisdiction over natural persons who are domiciled within the state even when they are temporarily absent. An analogous rule permits jurisdiction to be asserted over a corporation that is incorporated within the state or has its principal place of business there. Mostly this doctrine is part of the common law, but some states have embodied it in statute. And three, in-state service. Service on a natural person physically present within the territorial jurisdiction of a court secures personal jurisdiction over that defendant. And fourth, contacts with the forum state. The case International Shoe Company versus Washington decided that the due process clause of the United States Constitution allowed service on a defendant outside the state, so long as the defendants have certain minimum contacts with the state, such that the maintenance of the suit does not offend traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice. This language became known as the minimum contacts test. While due process allowed service outside the state, it did not require or implement such service. States had to pass statutes to assert long-arm jurisdiction, that is, reaching out to seize a defendant beyond the boundaries of the state. Today, all 50 states have long-arm statutes. When this basis for personal jurisdiction is employed, the court must follow a two-step process. First, the defendant's acts must fall within the scope of the long-arm statute. That is a question of statutory interpretation. Second, the exercise of jurisdiction under the long-arm statute must comply with the constitutional requirements of due process, that is, the minimum contacts test. Only when both steps are satisfied may the court exercise jurisdiction. Now moving to constitutional limits on in personam jurisdiction and the minimum contacts test. The long-arm statutes of the states can reach only so far as the Constitution allows. The constitutional limits of long-arm jurisdiction are found in the Due Process Clause. International Shoe established the test of due process to require that the defendant has 
certain minimum contacts with the state, such that the maintenance of the suit does not offend traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice. Later cases have interpreted, developed, and expanded this test. A state court may not exercise jurisdiction over a non-resident defendant unless, one, the defendant has had minimum contacts with the state, and two, those contacts were voluntary, three, the state is a fair and convenient location for the lawsuit. When the defendant has had no contact with the state, then the state may not assert jurisdiction, even if it is a convenient forum for the litigation. The third requirement, fair play and substantial justice, invites courts to consider a number of convenience factors. One is the probable location of witnesses and evidence. For example, in an action involving injury, allegedly caused by a defective product. The state in which the injury occurred is likely to be one in which much of the relevant evidence may be found. The witnesses to the accident, and perhaps to the diagnosis and treatment of the injury, are likely to be there. Physical evidence such as the product itself may also be located there. Now, moving to rules of in-rem jurisdiction and the types of in-rem jurisdiction. Courts may exercise jurisdiction over defendants who own property located within the state. When the action is to determine rights to property, the action is in-rem. An action to quiet title or an action to probate in a state are examples of in-rem jurisdiction. When the underlying claim is unrelated to the property and the property is seized solely to establish jurisdiction in the state, the action is quasi in rem. The location of the property, whether real or personal, in the state gives the state court power over the action. For example, plaintiff wishes to sue defendant for $100,000 for damages incurred in an automobile accident. The accident happened in Florida. The plaintiff wishes to sue in his home state of Illinois. Defendant has never been to Illinois, so that state's courts cannot assert in personam jurisdiction over her. Defendant's uncle dies and leaves her a boat docked in Lake Michigan worth $35,000. The Illinois court can seize the boat to establish quasi-in-rem jurisdiction. Should plaintiff prevail in the suit, he can enforce the judgment against the boat and will have a remaining claim of $65,000 to assert against the defendant in another state. Such an assertion of quasi-in-rem jurisdiction is, however, limited by a standard of reasonableness required by the United States Constitution. Both of these types of jurisdiction are well recognized by American courts. Recently, 
Courts have sometimes grouped both of these types of jurisdiction together as in rem jurisdiction. Now, moving to personal jurisdiction of federal courts. Even though Congress could probably, within the bounds of the Constitution, provide for exercise of nationwide personal jurisdiction by federal courts, it has not chosen so to extend the federal judicial power. As a general rule, the process, and therefore the personal jurisdiction, of a federal district court may not extend beyond the boundaries of the state in which the court sits, absent a state long-arm statute. The federal district courts also exercise in REM jurisdiction to the extent it is exercised in the state where the federal court sits, at least when personal jurisdiction in the district cannot otherwise be obtained with reasonable efforts. Accordingly, federal court personal jurisdiction is generally coextensive with state court personal jurisdiction. That is, a federal court sitting within a given state may exercise personal jurisdiction only when a court of that state could do so. Now moving to venue and state courts. While jurisdiction deals with the authority of a court to exercise judicial power, venue deals with the place where the power should be exercised. State venue provisions name a county or a few counties within the state where the suit may be brought. Venue statutes vary widely from state to state, so the individual state's statute must be consulted. Typical bases for venue include where the plaintiff resides, where the defendant resides, where the plaintiff or the defendant does business, and where the claim arose. These statutes are written on an abstract assessment of which courts are likely to be convenient to one or both parties. The limiting effect of a venue statute is to preclude the plaintiff from bringing the action in certain counties within the state that are likely to be inconvenient, particularly to the defendant. And venue in federal courts. As do state venue statutes, the general federal venue statute divides judicial business among the federal courts on a basis of predicted convenience to the parties. This is seen at 28 U.S.C. Section 1391. Section 1391A governs venue in diversity cases. And Section 1391B governs venue in all other, typically federal, question cases. Section 1391A1 and B1 in all cases allow venue to be laid in a district where a defendant resides, so long as all defendants reside in the same state. Sections 1391A2 and B2 in all cases also allow venue to be laid in a district where a substantial part of the events or omissions giving rise to the claim occurred, 
the options in sections 1391A and 1391B are fallback provisions. When a plaintiff lays venue in a wrong federal district, the defendant may waive objection to venue, either intentionally or inadvertently. When the defendant does object to venue, the court may either dismiss under the federal rules of civil procedure rule 12b3 for improper venue or transfer the action pursuant to the authority of 28 U.S.C. section 1406a to a district in which it could have been brought. And finally, forum nonconvenience. Sometimes a state trial court may decline to hear a case even when jurisdiction and venue are proper. Under the doctrine of forum nonconvenience, the court has discretion to dismiss an action if the forum is so inconvenient that justice requires the action be brought elsewhere. A state court can only retain the action or dismiss. It cannot transfer the action to another state. A federal court has the additional option of transfer of the case to a more convenient federal district for the convenience of parties and witnesses in the interest of justice a district court may transfer any civil action to any other district or division where it might have been brought in deciding whether to grant transfer under section 1404a federal courts generally take into account the same factors as do state courts in ruling on forum nonconvenience motions, including availability of evidence, possibility of view, location of the parties, and location of witnesses. A federal court may also dismiss on forum nonconvenience when the more convenient court is in a foreign country. In making its decision on whether to retain the case or to dismiss and hence require plaintiff to recommence in a foreign court, the federal court will consider private interest factors, including convenience to parties and witnesses, and public interest factors, including familiarity with the governing law. And this brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody and take care.